Welcome. You're listening to WO Voices, a podcast series from Women in Optometry magazine. I'm Marjolyn Bailefeld, editor of Women in Optometry. We're delighted you could join us. We're here today with Jenny Coyle, ODFAAO. Dr. Coyle is the Dean of the College of Optometry at Pacific University, and you are celebrating your 30th anniversary at the school. Is that correct? It is. I started as a first-year optometry student in the fall of 1989. Time flies. (laughs) How different is the experience that um, a student then had from the experience that you're trying to cultivate for students today? Oh, that so much has changed. So much has changed in not only the scope of practice and, and what we're what our students are learning compared to what the curriculum looked like when I was a student, but there's um, much more of a focus on intercultural communication and um, expanding clinical opportunities and, and really incorporating service learning and um, outreach into the community. And in Pacific, is, that's been our mission since day one. We were established as a school for orphans on the Oregon Trail. So providing access to education to the underserved has always been part of our mission. But I, I feel as if just in the last decade, we've really embraced that and we, we live it um, in all areas at our university, but definitely in optometry. You know, the demographics of the the profession have changed. When I was a student, there were far more men in my class than there were women. And in most optometry schools now, that's the reverse. Um, and I st- when I started optometry school, I had a nine-month-old. So I definitely wasn't um, an outlier because I had, you know, I had to figure out balance from day one. And I we have students in that same situation and more than just one in a class so- now. That's interesting, too. When you look at, um, you, you mentioned communication uh, as a as an emphasis now. What does the education around communication look like today? So, you know, I think as we, as the demographics of the United States in particular, and this is happening all over the world, change and, and we're much more multicultural across the whole nation, we want our students and the new practitioners to be able to communicate in a culturally competent way. So I, I know that all of our graduates are caring individuals, and we spend a lot of time focusing on providing tools for them to you know, be able to go into their community and relate to all of their patients. Um, and also the demographics not only are shifting from a gender perspective, but um, we're making inroads and, and we have such a long way to go, but we're, we're trying really hard to, um, attract students that are from underserved populations so that the profession itself will reflect the population as a whole. And we want students to be prepared to, um, you know, communicate and, and develop those strong doctor-patient relationships that, that we've always had in optometry um, in any community that they choose to practice in, demographics that we've talked about. I'm intrigued by the, the challenge that um, educators have in reaching out to first-generation students. There's so much um, pressure and so little um, 
support perhaps for for some of these students but you mentioned mentorship too that that must all fit together it does and and i have personal experience because i was a first generation college student and navigating through application processes and the OAT, um, some of the optometry schools now are accepting the GRE, which is a more well-understood mm-hmm. examination and um, more test takers to, to, to draw from. But you're right, there are challenges when you know students have to navigate through exam schedules and, and a lot of the students work. And um, we do our best at Pacific, and I know that all of the optometry schools are committed to reaching out and developing areas to support all of our students in different ways. Um, whether it's having an open door policy, it's having um, tutors available at specific times, being flexible when we can with scheduling labs and clinic and, and our curriculum because we know that students have unique needs. And we do our best to, to try to accommodate them. But at the same time, we have to deliver our curriculum and we're, we stay true and, and to our curriculum. So how important is, is mentorship? Did you have a mentor? Oh, I was so lucky. I've had so many mentors in my life. I think that's the secret of my success. And, and that's my mission. I think now I'm at the point in my career where it's time to, to pay it forward and pay it back a bit. Um, my first mentor was my contact lens instructor, Dr. Christina Schneider, who works for Johnson & Johnson Vision. She was my um, inspiration. And when I first started optometry school, I thought I would go back to Alaska and practice. And I really thought I'd be a ped specialist because I had a nine-month-old. That's what I knew. I knew how to, <laughs> to interact with kids. And and I loved working with babies. Um, and first semester of second or sorry spring semester of my second year that contact lens course I just had this aha moment this is what I want to do this little thin piece of plastic that can help somebody see is transformational and um, it's so intricate and you have to understand physiology and optics and material chemistry and she just really inspired me so I asked her you know, you just teach me everything you know. So I became her research assistant, her office assistant, her teaching assistant. Um, She established a residency program. And I, um, when I was a fourth year student, so when I graduated, I was able to be the second contact lens resident at Pacific. And, and throughout my career through the academy, um, I've had so many mentors. Glenda Secor is another one, Carla Zadnik, um, and I've had male mentors as well because you know most of the faculty here when I was a student they were men. But I, I think it's invaluable that that I always say a mentor is someone who sees something in you that you don't see in yourself, and they inspire you to be bold or do something that might be uncomfortable or scary because they have confidence in you. <laughs> and what made you? Um turn toward uh, academia? So through my time working with Christina, I, um, I just fell in love with research and being a teaching assistant. It really put me on my toes. I really had to understand. You really had to understand something if you're going to convey it to another individual. And 
I liked the dynamics of um, the work week in academia, and I, I love answering questions, and that's what research is. Um, so I would say my mentor inspired me to stay here at Pacific, um, much to the chagrin of my beloved optometrist in Alaska, who I was supposed to go back and uh-huh. take over his practice. <laughs> <laughs> I hope someone else did. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's great. I know when uh, the, the nominations came in for the Thea Award, which you won in 2018, you've obviously made a big impact on a generation of ODs who have come through Pacific and, and through other interactions with you. What makes a good mentor? Well, I think, first of all, you have to love what you do and you have to believe in what you do to inspire someone else. Um, you know, I'm, I'm the type of mentor who I'm always looking for opportunities for people. Um, the, the optometrists I've mentored, you know, if they've approached me and said specifically, I really want to do this, this, and this someday, I'll take, a, take it on as a mission to create a pathway or find some gateway for them, whether it's writing a journal article or it's picking up the phone and calling another alumnus who lives in the area they want to practice in. Um, I always volunteer to copy edit if if somebody wants to um, become a fellow in the academy and write their case reports or um, go to grad school and do their thesis or their dissertation project. Um, so I, I think a mentor is someone who, as I said before, sees something in someone else that they may not see themselves or are willing to, to admit. And that's what my mentors did for me. And I feel like I, to pay them back, I need to pay it forward. And, and, and I enjoy it. There's, there's nothing as rewarding as um, watching one of our students. And actually, I can even say it. Uh, an undergraduate student who then goes on to complete our program. And then as they enter their career, having the ability to, to help them navigate the profession and, and help them achieve their professional and even personal goals. What is, do you feel the biggest opportunity that, that an, an education can help them with? I always tell, as I tell all of the candidates, um, when they come to interview for optometry school, I have the I have the privilege of being able to talk to them about what a clinic curriculum looks like at Pacific, and and I also try to talk to them, and I do this also um, with the first year class, the value of developing your professional street cred, mm. and how important it is to always be thinking about ways to um, help you stand out so that you have choice in life. So when you graduate, you have the opportunity to look at any mode of practice that you might be interested in or any specialty area. So I think it's it's really important to establish your professional street cred by doing things that you may not have taken on because it wasn't required, by looking for role models that you wish to emulate, um, whether it's how you present yourself, um, the types of conferences and, and um, professional development opportunities that you engage in. Um, yeah, that it, it's funny. I haven't thought about this 
quite that way, but um, I think I, I think I try to start mentoring even candidates who don't even choose to come to Pacific um, from day one when they are here to interview. So generational differences, they, those obviously exist between um, instructors, students, um, probably even within the student body itself. Is, is that more challenging? It's just different. I think, you know, we, we always have challenges. People are people and we all have our differences and our different frame of reference and, and the different styles of communication. Um, and we do have to adapt. And I believe that it's our responsibility to adapt to the future students, um, way of learning and communicating. But at the same time, we do need to teach them what professionalism means. We've learned that, um, you know, with the, the millennial generation, and, and I'm, I don't want to be broad-based because everyone is unique, um, and now the students that are entering now are the, the Z generation. Because they are digital. They are very tech-savvy. They have expectations that we will be as well. Fortunately, we're in a profession where tech, it's just incredibly technology-driven and um you know, we have the diagnostic computerized tools that we did not have when I was a student or a recent grad. So they they have those expectations. And, and I think my generation and some of the um, those of us that have been in the profession longer, um, I think our expectations are different. And, you know, great example, I can't expect everyone's going to read an email that I send. But if I text message, whew, everybody will see it. Um, you know, for a long time, we're thinking Facebook is everything. But you know what? The current generation doesn't necessarily like Facebook. In fact, my two right. 20-year-old children told me this weekend they're both shutting down their Facebook page because they never look at it. So uh -huh. we have to be adapting in social media as well, even though, you know, most of my colleagues and friends are still on Facebook. To be an effective educator, I, I feel like I need to I need to communicate the way that a student feels comfortable. But at the same time you have to get your message across and, and there's definitely ways to do that and we're adapting. And um, it you know some people it takes longer than others and, and um, but we have to be I think good role models and mentoring students who are used to communicating in just a few short characters or, you know, it text messaging, you don't necessarily say, hi, it's Jenny. They know who you are. Or right. you never say hello and goodbye on a text message. Um, you know, things like that. When we mentor students into, into a profession, you know, those are the sorts of subtle things that, that we can easily teach and share. And, and that's another difference in how education is because when I started, you know, that was expected. You always had greetings and salutations and, um, and that's just one little minor difference, but a way that it's so simple to adapt. We just explain it. Right. And we have incredibly bright individuals entering the schools and colleges of optometry and they want to learn and they want to be professional. Well, you brought up a very interesting point. You said to be an effective educator, you have to communicate with the people that you're trying to reach 
at the level where they are. Now, of course, these students are going to go out into the professional world where this may not be the way that they're going to be expected to communicate with patients. Some, maybe, but uh, depending on, you know, where they end up, this they're going to have to learn, they're going to have to adapt to the communications as well. Absolutely. And that's, that's where being a good role model comes in. They, you know, if a, if a student graduates this year and, and enters into a community and serves primarily geriatric patients, they need to make sure they call everyone, Mr. or Mrs. or whatever is appropriate. Um, and, and the way that they communicate with their patients is different from how they communicate with each other. And, and, and that gets into, it's, it's not even intercultural. It can be intergenerational communication that we're trying to um, share with our students. Right, right. What is optometry education going to look like in 10 years? Oh, that's a great question. Because <laughs> as we look at um, scope of practice expansion and um, the influence of artificial intelligence and online, you know, on-demand eye care, there's concierge eye care now, there's on, you know, on-demand refractions on the cell phones. And um, I think the core basics are are going to be the same because that's what we do best. Embracing our ability to treat children that have binocular vision disorders, that's going to be really challenging for someone to develop an app to do that completely. Um, I know a lot of the schools are embracing hybrid learning and more case-based type um, settings because that the students can do some of their work on their own, on their own time. And then the class time is often spent just, just focused on critical clinical thinking and, and problem solving. And I think we'll see more of that in the future. Um, it's, it's challenging in optometric education because as the scope of practice expands, it means there's more we have to teach, mm -hmm. but it's really hard to give up our core and what we've been teaching for the like Pacific, for example, we're about to celebrate 75 years in 2020. And I, there's elements in our curriculum that are 75 years old. And some of it's, it's should be because it's what makes optometry so strong is that we, we think about the patient as more than just, um, I had a professor who used to call it two eyeballs on a stick. <laughs> Um, we think about the brain and the head that the eyeballs are in and the body that is attached to the head. And, um, so I, I think that element of optometric education is going to continue, but we're going to have challenges as we embrace expanded scope of practice and, and integrating that into our curricula, especially when we have so many states that don't have it yet. So it's going to take strategic partnerships with um, practitioners who do have that in their scope and of practice. Um, so that will change. I think we definitely will have um, broader interprofessional education and interprofessional collaborative care in our clinics across the nation, because I think we've recognized um, 
that when your physicians are talking to each other, you end up with better health outcomes. And so the schools are at this point, you know, moving steadily ahead, working with healthcare providers from other um, health professions and working with educators from medicine, dentistry, PA, pharmacology, um, Pacific, we expand that to psychology, OT, PT, audiology. Um, and, and that's also a communication um, element too, because it requires having the ability to communicate with health professionals from other disciplines and working as a team. And um, we do a lot more team-based activities in our curriculum now than we ever did when I was a student. Mm -hmm. And that's really to prepare them for the, the future of healthcare. That's exciting. It must be exciting to sort of envision how the practice of optometry is changing and what you as educators need to do to uh, prepare people for that. Absolutely. That's why I get excited when I wake up every day. I, I, I've had the best career. I'm, I, I tell a lot of people, I think I'm the luckiest woman alive. Pacific has been so good to me and off, you know, provided so many opportunities for me to do what I love. And I wish that for all, every woman that's listening to this or every practitioner listening. To I think I, I really want to encourage, um, young women in the profession to get involved. And we, we tell students to do this and sometimes they get overwhelmed with just, you know, the, the day to day getting through the curriculum, but you're the future of our profession and we need leadership and it can be in really small ways. And if you don't know how to get involved, I, I, I would welcome a call from anyone and I would, do whatever I could to help someone. I'd love to do a call to new women practitioners, just getting involved in, in their local state societies, getting involved in the academy, thinking, you know, if they're in a, in a group practice, demonstrating leadership in their practice. Um, anyway, and, and I would be happy to help with that. That sounds wonderful. I'm sure people would, uh, would love to hear your input too. So, Dr. Carl, thank you so much for your time and your insights and your enthusiasm about uh, where the profession is going. Well, I'm really honored that you asked me to, to chat, and um, I'm really grateful to Women in Optometry and, and the Women in Optometry organization. Um, you really have provided a home for a lot of young practitioners and um, a lot of inspiration for them. And... Um, I was absolutely floored by the award. So thank you to the, the Women in Optometry Board. It, uh, well-deserved, well-deserved recognition, Dr. Coyle. Thanks again for being here. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you join us again next time on WL Voices. If you'd like to be part of our podcast series, please contact us. You can email us at wovoicesonline at gmail.com or via our website, womeninoptometry.com, on Facebook at WO Magazine, or through Twitter or Instagram at WomenODs. See you next time.